Jarvis Masters arrived in San Quentin in 1981 at age 19, convicted of armed robbery. Four years later in 1985, Officer Sergeant Howard Dean Birchfield was murdered within the prison walls, stabbed to death at night on the second tier of a cell block. At the time, Jarvis was locked in his cell on the fourth tier. Although many were suspected of conspiring to murder Sergeant Birchfield, only three were tried. One was accused of being the spear man of actually stabbing the sergeant. Another was accused of ordering the killing. Jarvis was accused of sharpening a piece of metal which was allegedly passed along and used to make the spear with which the officer was stabbed. This weapon was never found. If found, it would have proven Jarvis innocent. In one of the longest trials in California history, all three defendants were convicted of murder, of conspiracy to murder. But their sentences varied. One jury recommended the death penalty for the spear man, but the trial judge reduced his sentence to life without parole because of his youth and his relatively minimal record. Another jury could not reach a verdict on the older man's sentence. The district attorney declined to retry him, and he was also given life without parole. After hearing about Jarvis's criminal history, that same jury sentenced Jarvis to death. Jarvis's lawyers asked the trial judge for leniency, also on the basis of his youth. He was only 23 when the crime occurred, just two years older than the convicted spearman. But the judge denied this request and sent Jarvis to death row. He has been there since 1990, waiting for his appeal to be heard. My name is Keith Den, and this is a special edition of Black Men Speak, a podcast that highlights ordinary black men doing extraordinary things. Over the next four episodes, we will examine the journey of Jarvis J. Masters, author of the book, That Bird Has My Wings, the autobiography of an innocent man on death row. His journey takes us from the arms of a heroin-addicted mother to an abusive foster home, on his escape to the illusory freedom of the streets, and through lonely nights spent in bus stations and juvenile homes, and finally to life inside the walls of San Quentin State Prison, where he's been since 1990. While in prison, he was set up for the murder of a guard which landed him on death row. At the time of his murder trial, he was in solitary confinement, torn by rage, filled by headaches, seizures, and panic attacks. But then, a meeting with a criminal investigator changed his life as she offered to teach him breathing exercises, which he repeatedly refused until desperation caused him to make a change. In this four-part series, we will talk about all of those things and how it ultimately changed his life. I'm really looking forward to this interview with Jarvis, and I hope you do too. Stay tuned. And the next voices you will hear is my interview with Jarvis J. Masters. Please take note, in the beginning of each episode, you will hear the voice of Corny Cole, a confidant and frequent visitor of Jarvis, who was responsible for orchestrating this interview between Jarvis and me. Plus, you will hear frequent interruptions that were part of the policy speaking to an inmate inside the prison. On that note, let's start the show. Okay, you there, Jarvis? I'm there. Okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add Keith. Stand by. Keith Dent, are you there? I'm here. Hey, Keith Dent, I'd oh, like wow. you to meet, meet 
Jarvis J. Masters. There you go. Take it from here, guys. You're being recorded. <laughs> How are you doing, Keith? I'm, I'm great. How are you? Oh, man, you know, it's one day at a time, you know. Uh, you got your good days and you got your bad days, and this is a pretty good one right here because I was able to do some writing then. Um, yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, just want, wanting to let you know that you're on uh, Black Men Speak Black Men Speak podcast. This is a podcast that features ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and you're one of those people. So I, I'm really honored to get a chance to talk to you today. Yeah, I really appreciate it, man. Really do. Good. I'm good. able to. Uh, get my voice outside of prison and know that I'm benefiting others with it. And uh, it just makes my day a lot better. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. So, um, yeah, we'll get started. Um, so as of today, um, how, how long have you been in San Quentin? Oh, man, I've been in San Quentin, uh, I know, 41 years. Um, and that's a very, very long time. I get confused with that because a lot of times I like to, I like to, uh, I like to start counting, you know, from the first day you're locked up, you know. Um, so it would be long, it would have been longer than that if I did that. But you, your question was how long was I in San Quentin? How long have mm-hmm. I been in San Quentin? Well, 41 years, that, that is a long, very long time. That's a, almost a lifetime, almost. Um, it is. And so I, I know... No you, question about it. It is yeah, a lifetime. Yeah, and I know you've seen a lot of uh, things, you know, and we'll get into some of them, um, but for those people um, that haven't heard your story or read the book, any of the books, um, if you could kind of give a brief synopsis of how how did you end up in prison and ultimately on death row in the first place? I think at the age of 17 or 18, I, uh, me and a guy had, um, we had robbed a gas station, you know, and in the process of robbing that gas station, we were on the run. I had already been on the run because I escaped from the California Youth Authority. And um, after a series of robberies, I ended up getting caught, you know. And I ended up going to prison because, you know, I guess the system was really tired of me. And um, I ended up going, coming to San Quentin at the age of 19. So I was really, really new to this whole scene of prisons. Um seemed like everybody I can look at was older than me. Um, so after about two or three years in San Quentin, a, a, a murder took place, you know, in a, in a particular a shoe unit. And they somehow put me involved in that. And uh, I've been fighting my case ever since, you know. Uh, how did I get on death row? You know, it was uh, my life story, you know, and the judge made that very clear. Um, how I ended up on death row and no one else. Um, and she basically said I shouldn't have been born um, and a whole bunch of other things. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, it takes a lot. It's, it really do. It really takes a lot to sentence someone to death, to die, you know. Uh, and you really have to, you know, in your mind sort of dehumanize um, you. I felt dehumanized for that woman to uh, give me the death penalty. It was just something about that, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's that's awful dehumanization, and we'll, we'll definitely get into that a little further later on. Um, but since you you talked about the judge saying you had never been born, and that's, of course, awful just to say to any human, uh, by the way. But you, you know, in your autobiography, you talked about, you started the book with your first memory of your your mom and your stepdad. And you mentioned that, you know, that they were the biggest heroin dealers and users in Long Beach, in Long Beach, in where you lived. So, my question is, how did that moment affect the trajectory of your life? Well, you know, we we, we really never know. Um, but I, I, I honestly, I honestly think I was not affected by it, you know, because I was so young and I was taken to uh, a foster home that I loved and. Uh, as a child, as a young five-year-old kid, you know, you you try to uh, adjust, and that's what I did, and I adjusted pretty well. And a lot of the stuff that went on as a as a young person, I didn't try to hide. I just felt like there was something else better to do: play baseball or football or something. Mm-hmm. And that's what I ended up doing. I got into sports. I got into school. I got into all these places. And somehow what I had experienced did not feel um, like it was a big, big, heavy thing. You know, I was wor- I was more worried about how my mother was doing, you know, and I wanted to be with her. And that was my whole experience is losing the faith of my mother. And that hurt it. Yes, I, and I can see that because, you know, being so young, you just know that your mom is your, no matter what circumstances that they're maybe going through, they're your source of comfort. And to have that, you know, just taken away makes it tough. But you, you did land into a great situation, and that's with the, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's pronounced, but I guess the Proxes, is that, that's how it's pronounced, their last name? Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, and so, and they they really cared for you and loved for you, but then she eventually got ill. Um, but what what I found striking, and I, and I'm not sure if I missed that, but the her husband felt that he couldn't take he couldn't take care of you or keep you. And what what was the reasoning behind that? Because I don't think it went into the it was in the book that often, or I might have missed it. My foster mother uh, had some kind of disease that was uh, life-threatening, um, life and it wasn't terminal. I don't think it was terminal, but I knew that she she didn't have the energy anymore to do it, you know. And uh, my foster father, Dennis, was his name. He, he didn't really, really... Um, 
take interest. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Didn't even take part. He didn't take that much interest in um, my my staying or leaving. He he just to me he felt like it was impossible to even imagine me leaving. You know, so uh, he did a really really good job in uh, not making it a big thing. I felt like it wasn't a big thing, but you know my heart was bleeding because it was a big thing. But I I just didn't have the words to explain how hurt I felt leaving that uh, foster home. And he didn't necessarily... I mean, you know what? I I, I ran. I ran away and I did a lot of stuff and I didn't want to come Mm -hmm. home. Uh, I thought they didn't like me. I thought I did something wrong. You know, you do all... You go through all these emotions and you Mm -hmm. wonder why, you know, you have to leave. And that was something that I felt like I did something wrong. You know, mm-hmm. um, but you know, in the end, at the end of the day, um, they made it. They made it easy for me to leave. You know, mm-hmm. um, not easy, but the transition was there. You know, right, right. And 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 I know you went through so many different foster homes, um, but you know, in your your story, there was one foster home that really, I guess they really did a number on you um, as far as your mental, physical, you know, I guess, state of being. So one thing which I found fascinating, because it wasn't just you that also dealt with this, it was also the other kids that were also uh, foster children. And why do you think, why do you think they were, and that more than likely probably wouldn't happen today, but why do you think they were able to get away with it so much, some of the things that they did? Uh, you know, now in retrospect, uh, I think I don't believe that the social services people uh, thought negative of, the, of that home because they had already had foster kids there, you know. So they had probably had to have good marks to be there, be able to do that. You have 60 seconds remaining. I, I honestly, I honestly, I honestly believe that they saw us as property. You know, um, we were stacked up, you know, in bedrooms, and they were getting a lot of money for it. And um, I think, you know, to keep that going, you have to behave in a certain way, you know, and uh, it was hard for us to do that, you know, it was hard for me because I never understood all the things that was going on in that home because there was so much violence and um, the way, it, 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 it was so loud, um, I, it was just very difficult for me to really, really uh, feel comfortable and then the virus started coming where I was being beaten and push down the stairs and all kinds of things, man. Wow. And that's such a travesty because it, it also goes back to what you mentioned earlier, the dehumanization. And these are supposed to be from individuals that are that are actually volunteering, so to speak, to care for children and are also receiving money to do so. So that to me it's it's very it's awful that that happened. And the fact that 
it put you also in another course where you did run away and you ended up in some of the boys' homes, which you know, we'll talk talk about in a few minutes. I know this is probably going to cut us off, so I didn't want to get started, you know, with a question. But I guess I should. Uh, I'll ask. Was there? Um, you know, Keith. Keith, we'll, we'll, why don't we? Uh, we'll drop off. Uh, Jarvis, okay. why don't you call me back, and then we'll we'll reestablish and we'll have a full fifteen minutes. Okay, that's great. Okay. Jay, you call me back, okay? Jarvis? Oh, Jarvis he dropped off. Yeah, he must. Oh, he got cut off. Okay. <laughs> well, good timing. Okay, okay. Oh, I can't wait until next week. I hope you're as, as captivated as I am in this story. Two things I would like to mention. Finding Freedom, Jarvis's first book, has been officially adopted into Brazil's national secondary school curriculum. It's a collection of stories, essays, poems, and letters where Jarvis explores the meaning of true freedom on his road to inner peace through Buddhist practice. And please follow freejarvis.org to delve deeper into his story and sign the petition to exonerate Jarvis J. Masters. Please share his website and please share this podcast with others. This is Keith Dent from the Black Men Speak Podcast.